Good morning, everybody. Welcome to St. Paul's Lutheran Church. My name is Lawton Thompson, one of the pastors here, and we are diving into the last chapter of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 24. There's a lot of, a lot of material here to work with and talk through, so I look forward to hearing your comments and questions as we discuss our way through the close of Luke's gospel account. But first, let's open in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, uh, you are our creator. You have made each of us your own unique, unrepeatable miracles, and we are thankful for that today, especially that you have called us into this place, that you have given us your word, and you have gathered us here around it. I ask that you would guide our discussion this morning, lead us uh, to see you and your plan, your will, in the pages here of the Gospel of Luke. In your name we pray. Amen. So, so we come to the last chapter of Luke. Uh, there's a lot that's gone on throughout this whole gospel, and we're kind of coming here to the close of this volume of, of Luke's writing, and it starts out with the resurrection. So we're just going to start working through it, and comments, questions, concerns, just raise your hand, and I will bring you a microphone, and we will, we will make our way through this beautiful, beautiful account of the resurrection the road to Emmaus, which I think is really cool, uh, and just this appearance to the disciples. So starting at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. So, in these first 12 verses, we've got the resurrection account of Luke, and it sees the women going to the tomb, getting ready to, to anoint that body with the spices they've prepared, which is something they would have been familiar with. And they get there, and the stone's rolled away. And if you've ever seen a picture of one of these tombs, it's a really big stone, and gravity is used to help get that stone in place. So it's just shocking that this stone would be rolled out of the way. But then to have an empty tomb and then be perplexed, I'm not sure about you, but I know for myself, if I was standing there, I would be perplexed as well. The idea of a, of a physical resurrection was completely foreign to, to Jewish thought at that time and to Roman thought. That was not something that was really on their mind. And so the fact that that they're perplexed, isn't all that shocking to us. Um, 
But the beautiful thing is, is there's these two men, messengers of God, standing there in this dazzling apparel, and they speak words reminding these women of what Jesus had said. The word, you know, the, the very words that he had spoken to them about what must happen, and they go, oh yeah, he did say that. Now, it doesn't mean that they totally understood everything, but they remembered what Jesus had said, and so excitedly they go back uh, and they tell this to the others, to the, to the 11 and then the rest of the disciples. Now, one thing that I, that's very interesting here, and it matches up very well with culture of the day, is verse 11. So the women tell the disciples this, and we read, but these words seem to them an idle tale. So this is kind of fascinating that this is actually included in all four gospel accounts because in the culture of the day, the word of a woman was not held in high regard. It wasn't something that you were like, hey, here's some testimony to make my argument more plausible for you. That was not the case at all. And so the fact that it's included, I think it's beautiful because it tells us that this, it gives credibility to this. There were witnesses alive that said, yeah, this is what happened. They're the ones that went to the tomb and came back and shared it. This is something that even if the gospel writers had somehow wanted to exclude, they couldn't have because it was so well known that this is how that first Easter morning played out. That God chose to work through these women to bring that news back to disciples. The disciples who are terrified at this point in time. You know, just... Just a week ago, they had gone into Jerusalem and, and everything was going really well. And how, now they stand here a week later and Jesus is dead. They've put him in the ground, they've seen his body and they're going, what now? They're hiding. They're not, they're not super excited about what comes next for them after they've seen what's been done to him. And so all this happens and, and Peter impetuous Peter hears this and he's not one to sit still so he jumps up and he runs all the way over to the tomb he looks in he sees that and he goes home marveling again it doesn't say that he totally gets it but he's going he's he's really contemplating this what does it mean that the tomb's empty what does it mean that Jesus said that these things were going to happen and that's Luke's resurrection account here kind of paints us this picture of this first Easter morning. You guys have any comments, any questions about those first 12 verses? When it says that the women remembered what he had said, it, you think back to all the times before when Jesus was telling the disciples and people what was going to happen, and they didn't really get it. Yeah. But now it's almost like a revelation that, yeah. that their eyes and ears are opened. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's something that comes out uh, so beautifully in Luke's gospel. We talk about the Christocentricity of Scripture, how we read Scripture with Jesus at the middle. Um, and we're actually going to see it kind of very succinctly, I think, in verse 27 down here. Don't fast forward. It's just a preview. Yeah, verse 27. But it is. It points to him. And so they've been walking with him and hearing all of these things. 
and it points right to him all the way through. They're remembering the things that were said. Thank you. All right, anybody else? Seeing no hands. We're not going to skip ahead to 27. We'll get there in a minute. But we will go forward to 13. So the road to Emmaus, this is something that we, we only find in Luke's gospel account here. This is on the same day. So the road to Emmaus, I want you to remember, like this is East, the first Easter Sunday that this is going on here. This isn't like, you know, a couple weeks down the road, they were wandering off to Emmaus. So, so Emmaus is, is about seven miles away. It's kind of west, maybe a little bit north of Jerusalem. So it's kind of on the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. So starting at verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Um, I'm going to pause right there because the company of disciples is larger than just the 12 were, at this point the 11, right? There was a whole bunch of people going with Jesus, uh, but, but the core group was that 11. And so we don't, we know that there was, there was many of them. These right here, we don't know what's going on with them, but while the rest of them are holed up and hiding, it's not beyond the shadow of a doubt to think that these guys were pretty discouraged and are like, man, all this stuff happened. I don't know what we're going to do. And they're kind of cruising away, a little bit brokenhearted and you know, faith a little bit struggling with what's gone on as they're making their way and discussing all of these things, trying to make sense of this whole last week and what's happened. And so Jesus comes near to them, this guy that they've been with, and they don't recognize him. It's this understanding, right? Like, he's there. Their, their sight is veiled. And he said to them, that's Jesus, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, this, all of the things that happened with Jesus was big news. And so to be in that proximity to Jerusalem and have somebody say, Man, you guys seem pretty sad. What's going on? Would be like missing the glaring, flashing neon sign of what had happened, what had taken place in just the last couple of days, not even to mention the whole week. Um, and so, so they, they respond to him in that way. And then he says, what things? What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they kind of recount the events, and I think the key here to, to kind of where their hearts and minds are at is here in verse 21. We had hoped. 
We had hope. These guys are wandering away from Jerusalem, away from the company of disciples, forlorn, saying, we thought that this was the guy. We thought this was God's Messiah. We had hoped for this. But maybe not. And so they are wandering off. They're telling Jesus all about this, even though they have no idea who Jesus is. Uh, And this right here, I think, is kind of comforting for us because there's times in our life where God is very evident, where it is clear what he's doing in our lives and through us or in our community of believers and through us. And then there's times where we kind of go, where are you at, God? I don't see where you're at work here. Um, And it's not until we get a couple exits down the highway, we look in the rear view and we go, I see what you did there. That was pretty cool. We who've never seen Jesus, who didn't get to physically walk beside him, struggle with that. But even these guys right here that had been wandering around with him, seeing the miracles, the teachings, all of that stuff, they're struggling with it, even though they were there with that physical proximity. And so like, when I read this, I take a little comfort in the times where I struggle and go, okay, God, where are you at in all this? Because even they did. Even they don't get it. They're once again standing next to the, the Savior of the world that they had walked with and they don't recognize him. And so again, they attest to the fact that it was the women of the company that went to the tomb and they brought back this good news back to the disciples. <clears throat> and so, Jesus responds, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I think that's, that's what you were getting at, bud, just a minute ago. Jesus says to them, he walks them through it. All of the scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, which we'd call the Old Testament, how all of these things are leading and pointing as you see God's plan of salvation through all of history to Jesus. Verse 27 here really is this beautiful Christocentric nugget where we're reminded that Christ is at the center of all Scripture. And it's maybe something you should highlight in there because one of, the, one of the biggest troubles that we have as fallen, sinful people walking through this world is when we start to struggle with something and then we go to God's Word and we place ourselves at the center of the narrative. We make ourselves the center of the story, a place that we were never meant to have. We are a part of God's story. He has called you into his story. He invites you into that, placing faith in your heart. But it's Jesus that it's at the center all the time. And, and this is a beautiful picture of that as he talks to, to these two on the road to Emmaus, Emmaus, saying, all right, guys, let's go back. Let's rewind to the scriptures. Let's take a look at all of these things, the things that I've said to you, the things that have been written by the prophets what's taken place across history, and how it points to Jesus. Christocentricity of Scripture. Um, 
So he says these things. Oh, yes, Ruth. I got to... I'm struck by the fact that they, uh, the phrase, uh, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yeah. they obviously had the other interpretation of redeem. Mm -hmm. They thought he was going to come up and, and uh, defeat the Romans and Israel would be a glorious nation yeah. again. And he was, he did redeem Israel, but the totally different interpretation. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why he had to go through and say, no, that's not what was meant. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, their idea of what the Messiah was and what he was going to do, even the idea of what is Israel was different. We remember through the Old Testament, Israel is, is the, the ethnic group, that nation of Israel wandering through. But when we get to this point, right, Jesus is Israel reduced to one. He redeems Israel. And now if we were to use that term, we would call that the church because it's no longer I can trace my lineage back and I can, you know, I'm, you know, Abraham's great, great to the 100,000th power grandson, right? It's I am an heir of the promise because of the blood of Christ, not because of, of my ethnicity, right? And so, yeah, there's still a total misunderstanding about what's the Messiah supposed to do and even what is Israel, um, at this point in time. Uh, they, they still don't get it. They're, the veil has not been removed from their eyes. Um, and so Jesus says these things to them. He recounts all of this stuff. And then we find verse 28, which makes me chuckle just a little bit. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. He had all this conversation, all of this dialogue with them, and they still, they're like, hey, you should just come stay with us tonight, have dinner, it'll be good. You know, they're being hospitable, uh, but like the light bulb hasn't gone on yet at all. Right? Yeah. Steve said, I think there would have been a lot more questions. I'm sure. Like, I can only imagine if I started listening, I, I want to think that I would just start going, okay, you're saying some things. I need you to, to clarify that for me. But God wasn't, he wasn't ready for that full revelation on that road yet. And so then we come to, to verse table, uh, verse 30, where they're at table. <clears throat> when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. I want to pause right there. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the Lord's Supper, right? Now, this meal, this meal is not the Lord's Supper. It is not what it looks like, but the manner in which he approached it, the things that he said, the actions he took, opened their eyes. That the very presence of God was with them, that this was Jesus. Their eyes are open and they go, oh my goodness. Whoa, it's Jesus. Not because they had some, you know, new great knowledge of who he was, but because God chose to reveal himself in that way, in that place, 
as he blessed that meal. Um, and it's an allusion right back, not illusion, but allusion, as Luke alludes to the Lord's Supper here, sharing with us the way that Jesus made himself known in that place. Uh, and what, what a beautiful comfort for them at that meal to realize that the Savior is actually risen, actually risen and with them. And then he vanishes. I mean, it's, it's a short little sentence right here. It's like six words. But I don't, wanna, I don't want to just roll over that because for him to be with them, holding the bread, blessing the meal, walking with them, talking, and then he vanishes from their sight. Jesus is true God and true man, fully God and fully human. So he can be fully physically present and then vanish. I don't know how that happens, so you can ask all you want, and I'm just going to say, because he's God. But that's another beautiful picture of who he is here in the scriptures, that he can be there with them in the flesh and then be somewhere different. Not like a magician, not like a sorcerer, but because he is God, the God of all things. That's who he is. And these six words right here, I think, are just a beautiful testament to that. And so this happens. Now, they're like, oh yeah, this is Jesus. He disappears. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has, indeed, has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The presence of God caused a burning within them. They couldn't put their finger on it, but there was something wrestling inside them. And, and when he was revealed, there was this beautiful excitement that they had to go back and share this. They had to go and say, it's true, he's physically risen. He was with us. And we're going to see that again here in just a little bit as Jesus comes and appears to the other disciples. The importance of that physical resurrection. Um, for our God to be alive physically, right? Not just some idea of a, of a spiritual resurrection, but an actual physical flesh and blood resurrection, and Luke closes that out with, with the account of them saying how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. If you haven't seen in the last couple of chapters the importance of the Lord's Supper in Luke's Gospel, you see it again here. At breaking of the bread, Christ is truly present with us. In, with, and under the bread and the wine. Participation 
in the body and blood of Jesus, us sharing the confession of faith, a little foretaste of that feast to come. What a beautiful thing here. Now, before I move on to this next section, I want to make sure I address any questions because I know you guys might have some. Don't be afraid of the mic. Comments. No. Oh, man. All right. Here we go. So, road to Emmaus. He's appeared to those, those disciples right there on the road to Emmaus, those two. The women saw the empty tomb. They saw the angels. They haven't seen him yet. And so they come back and they report this to the rest of that company of disciples that are hiding out in Jerusalem that are still like, their heads are swirling with all of the things that have gone on. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So he vanishes, he reappears here right in the midst of the disciples and says, peace to you. Um, And their reaction, I think, is appropriate. If you're standing there hiding out and suddenly Jesus is with you and says, peace to you, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. I don't... I can't fault them at all on that. (laughs) A lot has happened, and here he is standing amongst them. They've heard this, and now they're going, wait, now I see him. And he's saying, peace to you. My mind doesn't work that fast. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That's that physical aspect of the resurrection that Jesus is talking about here. That Luke has recorded for us of the conversation here. Because The idea of flesh bad, spirit good was something that was around back then. And so this idea of the Messiah being one that was flesh and blood, that would raise physically back to a body on this plane, was kind of a crazy idea. And so the fact that that Jesus is saying, here, it's me. Touch me, I have, I, have, I have skin, I've got hair. It's really me is a pretty big deal. And for us, 2,000 years later, to see the testimony that, yes, he actually physically rose from the dead is a beautiful thing, is an important thing for our faith, right? We cannot empirically prove it with science, right? I can't go A squared plus B squared equals C squared and tell you Jesus rose from the dead But by the testimony of the eyewitnesses to those accounts, we trust in the word of God that's been passed down to us. And it tells us that he physically was raised from the dead. And when he had done this, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved, for joy they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So if there was any confusion, he says, I'm hungry. (laughs) I need something to eat. 
A spirit doesn't need a fish to eat. But a flesh and blood human being does. And he took it and he ate it before them. And in the midst of that, they still don't get it. They still disbelieve, Luke tells us, that they're still looking and hearing and experiencing all of this in the full presence of God there and going, here's a fish, Jesus. I don't know what to do with this. So, as we reflect on that, and I've probably said this to you before in here, this kind of links up with the Christocentricity or the Christ-centered nature of Scripture. We don't lean on our own understanding. Throughout the Scriptures, throughout these Gospel accounts, we see, whether it's Old Testament kings, whether it's disciples, whether it's anyone in the Scripture, when we lean on our own understanding, things don't go so well. We, we stumble, we fall, we make a mess of things. Um, just read the book of Judges. It's a great example. You know, lather, rinse, repeat. The people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so he sent oppressors, and they cried out to the Lord, and he heard them, and so he sent a deliverer. Lather, rinse, repeat. When we lean on God, when we lean on his promises, when we trust in his word, when we go to him, it doesn't mean that life is all sunshine and roses. But it does mean that we're walking more according to his purposes. That we see him at work in those things. Maybe a little easier, although we might still be looking in the rear view to see those things. Um, And the reason I say that is they're here in the presence. They're handing him a fish to eat. He's eating the fish right in front of them and they're going, I see all these things. I hear all these things. But I'm not sure I'm buying it. Um, Because understanding, revelation comes to us from God, not from ourselves. It, it is good to study the scriptures. It's good to spend time in God's word and in prayer. And through that, he reveals things to us when we're trusting in him and leaning on him. But when we go there and put ourselves at the center, when we go there with our own agendas for things, we make a mess of, we make a mess of things. And so we kind of see it here. If, if they can be in his very physical presence feeding him and not get it, then we shouldn't be frustrated as much when we don't get something here. We can rest confidently and say, God, I know you're doing something here. I don't know what it is. I might not even like it. But I know you're doing something here, and I'm going to trust that you're going to carry me through. I'm not even going to trust that you're going to walk beside me. I'm just going to trust that you are going to carry me through this that you are going to be my strength, that you are going to be my patience. I don't ever want to ask for patience. I just want to ask God to be the patience I need in my life. Um, And so lean on him, on his word, on the promises that he's given to us. And, And he's given us one another too for those times in life where we are grieving, where we're hurting, where we're angry, and I can't see or remember the promises of God. He's given me brothers and sisters in Christ to speak those promises of God into my life when I need to be reminded of them. 
And that's the beauty of gathering together as a body of believers. I love, I love all the things about technology, but one thing I really love is getting to see you guys in person and getting to talk with you and getting to know what's going on in your life so that I know when I need to lift you up in prayer for something that's going on in your life. And we can do that over the phone too, but there's something good about being physically present with one another. I'm a little bit on a tangent here, but I believe that. It's good to see you guys here this morning. And it's good to have our brothers and sisters gathered on the radio. I'm glad to have that media to be able to share God's word with you at a distance. But I sure wish I could see your smiling faces. So, I just finished uh, verse 43 here. So, any comments on anything we've just covered in those few verses? Any questions, any thoughts? I'm struck by how patient he was with the disciples. Uh, he, he doesn't scold them, uh, but he, he realizes their human frailty, and he shows them, shows them the evidence of the crucifixion in the hands and feet, and then this actual eating. Yeah. And he does the same with us. He often, uh, you know, well, our communion is, uh, again, we're... we're seeing and touching yeah. and taking in his body and blood. So he, he, does, he doesn't just expect us to believe what he says. Right. Uh, and, and, and he's patient with us the same way. Yeah. I think that's a, a beautiful reminder in the sacraments that he's given us. You know, you see that water poured over the head of that baby in baptism. You feel the bread. You taste the wine as you take the Lord's Supper as you receive it. It's a beautiful reminder that he is physically present. He's not gone from us, he, and he is very patient with us, for sure. What do you make of the body of the resurrected body of Christ that he could eat and appear to them, and yet he could vanish from their sight? You know, that's a great question, but I appreciate that. I, I love that because it reminds me that he's true God, and that's a, that's a Jesus pocket question that I have. I don't, know if, I don't know if when I get to see him face to face, I'll remember any of my Jesus pocket questions because I've got quite a catalog going. But that's one of them is to say like, so you were there and then you vanished and then you appeared? How'd you do that? And he says, well, I'm, I'm God. I can do that. I, which, that's a great question though. I just think it's a beautiful testament to the fact that he is God. The, the reality of when these gospel accounts arose was, was still within the first generation of witnesses. So when Luke wrote this letter, when Mark or Matthew, when they wrote, people that had seen these things would have still been around. So they could have said, that's not what happened. And yet in the midst of all of that, in the midst of you know, persecution and things like that going on around the empire, these gospel accounts recording for us the life and times of Jesus survived. Even in the face of things that didn't make a whole lot of sense for somebody to write, like if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, the fact that the women are the ones that came and saw and told the disciples. And we see that in all of those gospels. And yet it survived. Yet it came all the way to us. It's a, a beautiful thing. 
Here, I'm going to give you the microphone. Oh. We see here as we go through all the Gospels, the women are the ones that carried the ball and got things going. I am thankful for, for the women in the Gospel yes. accounts, for sure. They, they, um, they are a beautiful witness to Christ and His work on our behalf, His love, His mercy, His grace. Yeah, for sure. They are, they are there. They have, they have a central role in these things throughout Jesus' ministry. So yes, Anything else? Let's sneak right over here. I have a, I have a couple of questions, so I don't want to take us too far into the weeds. Um, so several things, one of which is when they use the term vision, what does that mean exactly? Mm. Um, saw a vision of angels, uh, as opposed to saying they saw a vision of Jesus walking with them. Right. Do you want to answer that yeah, one? Yeah, I can answer that one. So when, when, I, when, I, when I hear that, when the women say we saw a vision, I think they're trying to wrap their minds around what's going on. I, when I read that text, I see the idea that those two messengers of God are there with them in those dazzling clothes, and the women are seeing this and going, I hear the things you're saying. I know, like, I know what I'm hearing. But they're looking for words to describe it. Have you ever seen something so tremendous that, like, you're you're reaching for the words to just find out how to explain it to someone else? And I feel like that's kind of where they're at. And they're saying, we've seen a vision of this. Um, Because I do believe that those two messengers of God were physically there saying, why do you look for the living among the dead? So uh, another one, and this may have to do with if you cross-reference the other Gospels, uh, sometimes they talk about the 11. So I'm assuming Judas is already not with them, but neither mm-hmm. is Thomas. But the term the 11 is used there. Yeah. Another Gospel writer uses the 12, one of the 12. Right. Uh, so my question, that's, that's a, a small question. Yeah. The other one is, which appearance is this? In other words, um, I... You know, the Lucan one seems to be on Easter, mm-hmm. on Resurrection Sunday Eve. Yeah. Um, and yet, uh, and there Jesus appears, he shows him his hands and his right. feet. John doesn't include the Thomas mm-hmm. incident. Right. Um, just curious if, if in, in your reading and so forth, there's some, some commentators have tried to I would, have to, I would have to go and look that up. I don't know exactly where. So we know Emmaus is on Easter, but where this appearance fits in the, in the chronology, I'm not even going to try to place that right here because I did not, did not read across that uh, in my reading. But what we do notice is that Luke moves very quickly from that Easter Sunday to the Ascension, and he is, we're going to read that in just a minute, and he is really succinct. Now, a part of that may be because he might already know he's going to be penning this history of the early church in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but much when we watch Luke's gospel, he points to that crucifixion. He points to Christ's redemptive work. Um, and so kind of everything after that is really succinct. I mean, not, not Mark succinct, but, you know, much less verbose. I, don't, I can look that up for you, though, and get back with you. 
but I'm not going to commit if I can't say it confidently. <laughs> Maybe I need to give the microphone back to Mark, but <laughs> what I'm wondering at this point is what are some of the criticisms in other traditions or in maybe higher critical thinking and objections to the resurrection and what are the apologetics mm. from, from the LCMS into those ah, heresies? That's, that's a good question. That's a good question. So when we look at, when we look at what's going on here in the gospel accounts, our, our teaching, the way we look at Scripture is that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. So like it or not, I have to read this and take every part of it because it is God's Word. And we look at the different kinds of literature, right? There's, there's poetry in here. There's historical literature. There's narrative. There's apocalyptic literature. When we see these accounts, and it seems to come across as literal, like a literal account of what happened, that's what we take it as. Um, many times today, and this is not exclusively across the board, um, a couple of different things will happen. Some traditions have said they've moved from saying the Bible is the Word of God to saying the Bible contains the Word of God. And even though that's a very small change in the wording, it's a very big shift in how we look at what is recorded for us there. Because instead of making this the rule and norm for faith, I become the editor. And I get to say, well, you know, you know, Jesus didn't say that. This is, I, you'll hear this, right? Jesus didn't actually say that. I know Paul wrote about that, but, but Jesus never said that. Um, and so that's one of the things you'll hear, and that's fraught with trouble because as many different people are in this room are as many different opinions as we have. And when you enter into a discussion and say, well, I mean, maybe, maybe, he meant, you know, maybe we should take what Paul said as God's word, but maybe we shouldn't. And so that's, that's one aspect of it. And that's, a, that's kind of prevalent because we want to look at it and say, well, you know, because it was penned by human authors, because monks in monasteries transcribed this over the years, certainly there are errors in this. Certainly something has gone wrong across all of time as they have pass this down, and so it can't be the inerrant word of God, uh, which is, <laughs> that's, a, that's a real struggle. Uh, the other thing that we find is kind of right around uh, 1650, uh, we're, we're kind of on the leading edge of the Enlightenment, um, and Descartes has his famous saying, right, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum, uh, and what you see there, I'm going to use my hands. Sorry, you guys on the radio. So, in 1650, people pretty much took for granted that God was a thing. Like, you ask anybody. Might, they might have a different opinion of who God is or what God is, but, like, there is some great big other out there, right? And I am tiny compared to that. 
So the person was down here. wish I had a whiteboard right now. And God was up here. As we move forward from 1650, you see those two lines shifting. And the rise of the individual, or the triumph of the individual, as we'd eventually come to call it, comes over here. And the centrality of God decreases. Um, and that's kind of where we've come to today, uh, is the idea that man is at the center rather than God, that I am, that the buck stops here, so to speak. Uh, and so then what we end up doing is we end up, and, it, it, and it's kind of where this contains the word of God, that kind of thought comes from, is saying, I am the authority on this. I am the one that knows things. Um, and it's kind of baked into our culture. And we have to, and I don't want you to throw anything at me, but we are, we are brought up in that. Even though, we are, even though we believe that the Bible is the word of God, the way that we're taught to think culturally is a way that places ourselves as the final judge in things, right? It's, um, and that's so problematic because when I say, when I have to apply Aristotelian logic to this and rationale to this and, and reason it out, it doesn't, like, it defies reason. The fact that the God of all things would come down here in a little grotto in Bethlehem, be laid in this manger, this feeding trough for animals, walk through the dusty, dirty streets of first century Palestine, be nailed to a cross and die for a people that were literally nailing him to the cross, completely defies logic and reason. It makes no sense. Uh, and so it's, that's the other place that we go with that. Um, and it's, I don't want to go into philosophy, so I'm not even, <laughs> I'm not even going to go there, but that's where a lot of our modern philosophy has come, is to say, I'm at the top, I get to question everything, um, but kind of what, I'm not a philosophy major, I'm just going to say it. So what Nietzsche was getting at when he talked about nihilism was essentially when the top value, when the highest value is questioned, it's devalued. And so when we put ourselves at the center, when we start questioning all of the things, and it doesn't mean you can't question but it does mean that when those highest values are questioned, immediately they become devalued because they're being subjected to your logic and your reason. Um, and, and Nietzsche was calling attention to something that he saw. I'm not weighing in on, his, on anything else about him, but when he wrote that, he was pointing at something that he saw happening in society around him and culture around him. Um, and I am not enough of a philosophy major to talk much deeper than that, but I, re I read enough about it to at least be able to say that. Does that, does that help? A lot of it is the man at the center um, that we come to. We have to be really careful of that. All right. Anything else? What's that? Lutheran witnesses. Yeah, the Lutheran, the Lutheran Witness does. Those, some of those publications are very helpful for us. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so what Steve was just saying is that the Lutheran Witness comes out and it's got good content, good questions for us to help wrestle with some of this um, as, it, as it addresses some of these questions, some of the, the heterodox teachings or the heretical teachings that have cropped up um, that can be very easy to slip into. It's sometimes, the, the, you know, the, what they say, the devil is in the details. Sometimes those subtleties are where we can get into real trouble. And so, um, but here, if we remember that Jesus is at the center of all scripture and that the Bible is God's inspired and errant word, when we read it that way, I mean, we have questions, right? It's not that we're not allowed to ask questions. Please don't hear me say that. But when we ask our questions in a way that seeks to understand this, not in a way that seeks to I'm searching for the word. Tear it apart. <laughs> right? When we ask from, from a position of faith and say, God, why did you do that? Not, God, you couldn't have done that. If you were flesh and blood, you certainly couldn't have disappeared out of that room. There's a difference uh, in that. And we actually, I know it's a whole different gospel, but as you work through the gospel of Matthew, whenever you see the Pharisees approach Jesus the way they ask their questions is from a whole different angle. And it's the wrong angle to ask questions. Instead of, for example, saying when they're asking about the law, because that's what they love to talk about, instead of asking, you know, a question about, you know, how, how can I stay over here, away from breaking the law, the Pharisees are normally asking questions about how close can I get to the barking dog before I get bit? How close can I toe the line to the law before I'm actually breaking your law, God? Um, two very different, you know, directions of questioning. Anybody else? Yes. Perhaps we forget that we are verbal inspiration believers. And we've, the power of the Holy Spirit works through that word. I don't have to understand all of it. I have to accept it as God's word. Yeah. And eventually, he seems to reveal himself, right. just as he did to the disciples or the men on the road. Yeah. They didn't immediately understand everything. Right. But, but when their understanding came, it was because the Lord gave it to them, not because of their wisdom or intellect. Absolutely. And I'm, I don't and all mean to be pejorative about intellect. Studying right. is powerful, yeah. but only if God is first. Right, if we, if we keep him at, him at the center. Actually, that's a, a really beautiful way to point towards when we gather together in worship. It says divine service because God comes to us and he serves us in word and in sacrament. And the spoken word, the word of God is powerful and it actually does things. He said, let there be light, and there was a helpful little syllogism that helped me wrestle with that is reason is never more unreasonable than when it attempts to reason those things that are beyond reason i like that and and nothing's more beyond reason than the person of christ or his yeah. promises for the resurrection even his atonement man so. Can you say that one more time for me? I want to hear that one more time. Reason is never more unreasonable than when it attempts to reason those things that are beyond reason. 
There's a limit to the use of reason. Yeah. And then we have, it's the ministerial use. We use reason as a servant, not a magisterial use. We don't use reason to lord it over the scriptures. Excellent. I think that's the quote of the day right there, you guys. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Seeing no other hands, I'm going to read a couple more verses here. We've got like seven minutes. You think we can do it? I don't know. I don't want to rush you guys. So he ate the fish. That's where we pause at 43. So we're at 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus eats the fish. He's like, all right, I, I've got my meal in me. Let's unpack this. Uh, and so he, he shares with them. He opens their eyes. He, they can see what is happening because he opened their eyes, not because they studied hard enough, not because they just finally got it, because he opened their eyes. And he kind of gives them a charge. This isn't, this isn't the words of the Great Commission exactly that we find at the end of Matthew's Gospel but he tells them, you guys are supposed to go and tell the story. You are supposed to go and share this with the people that are out there. You're going to start at Jerusalem, and then you're going to go out to all nations. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then right there in verse 49, we get, we get the little preview of Pentecost. And I love the way he words it here. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. The promise of my Father. That same promise that we receive in baptism that comes to dwell in us. As his forgiven children baptized temples of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That's pretty awesome. I love that. But notice how succinct all this is. I mean, Luke's like, he's kind of just moving through this, telling us what Jesus said, doesn't give us a whole lot of the extra there. But Jesus is preparing him, because this time he's, he's ascending to his father in just a little bit, and he is not going to be physically with them in the same bodily way that he has been. He's promised to be present in the supper, truly present, in the supper, but he's not going to be walking beside them, you know, sharing jokes as they're walking along the road between towns in Galilee anymore. And so they get to now be his hands and feet. They get to be Jesus with skin on to the people that don't know him yet. Something that we still get today as believers in Jesus when we share those words of the promises of God when we comfort someone that's grieving and point them to Christ. We, in a very real way, get to bear witness to him, get to be um, 
It's a strange thing to say, but we get to be Jesus with skin on in the lives of those people that don't yet know him. We're not Jesus, but we're shining the light on him. All right, the ascension. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing, continually in the temple, blessing God. So there's a few things that happen in here that Luke doesn't tell us about. He doesn't record it in his gospel. It's recorded for us in the other gospels. But it gets to this essential...